This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Be encouraged by the reading of God's word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Jeremy, the pastor here at the Axis. And once again, welcome. I'm really glad that you're here today. You sounded great singing. Uh, we got some more singing to do after we uh, get through the sermon this morning, but it was wonderful hearing your voices. Love to sing with our church family. Uh, if you haven't already done so, grab a Bible and go ahead and find Luke chapter 4. There should be a Bible close by, under the seat in front of you, um, or on the seat near you. Uh, grab it and turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're in our seventh week now in our study through the book of Luke that we've entitled The Real Jesus. Uh, Luke, the author of this particular letter, this document, was a doctor. Uh, he was a historian. He was highly educated, respected within the church as well as outside the church. Luke was a second generation, not Jewish Christian, but a second generation Gentile Christian. And he wrote for many reasons, but, but for certain he wrote for us all to know that we have been invited into grace that we've been invited into the forgiveness of our sins through saving faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so much like Luke in chapter one, you'll see that he wants us to know with certainty the things regarding Jesus the Christ. Much like Luke, we desire to know and believe and hope in the real Jesus with certainty. A couple weeks ago, we, we uh, read through and had uh, the sermon on John the Baptist as he was the promoter, uh, the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus. He was the one making a way, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Uh, he, was, he had a twofold message, essentially, that was uh, repent um, in faith and belief in the Messiah, as well as be baptized in faith and belief of the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins. And then last week, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus there at the end of chapter 3, where we landed, if you have your Bibles, you can see it, in verse 38, concluding that portion of the genealogy of Jesus in Luke. It says that Adam was the son of God, meaning he was created by God. God was his father, okay? 
And we likened it to Jesus being the Son of God created by the Father in the womb of the Virgin Mary, where Jesus, too, is the Son of God, having only God as his Father. And how Jesus is the second Adam, how Jesus is the greater Adam, where sin, where Adam failed and brought about sin, Jesus succeeded, stayed free from sin, right? Um, and delivers us not into sin, but into righteousness. And so this is uh, where we now come to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Context is key when you study Scripture. Uh, it keeps us from a lot of error. All right, so understanding context, just before the genealogy, here's what Luke is doing. He's telling a story. The baptism of Jesus just happened by John the Baptist. John the Baptist preaches repentance and baptism. Jesus comes and is baptized. Jesus is baptized, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And it's as if Luke is saying, ah, son, here's the genealogy of Jesus. But in the context for chapter 4, verse 1, it really comes not necessarily from the genealogy, but from the, uh, the voice from heaven the blessing and the, the special spirit resting on Jesus at his baptism and the declaration of God over his son, Jesus, as this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This public endorsement that God made over Jesus. Extremely significant for understanding chapter four, verse one. Jesus just was endorsed publicly by God as this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, you imagine, that's an... That's an understatement, right? You go four hours and you're like, man, I'm just, I'm angry. I just need some food, right? 40 days, right? He's hungry. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit about temptation this morning. So temptation uh, isn't sin. Temptation isn't sin. Temptation is a call to action by the enemy who hopes to lure us in, to bait us in, to entice us into sin, Temptation is like the first domino in a chain reaction that, if set in motion, may well lead to sin. But again, temptation is just a call to sin. It's not a sin. But notice again in the context, the immediate result of Jesus's special empowerment of the Spirit of God was that he was sent into the desert, into the wilderness to face on his own the attacks of the enemy, the attacks of the devil. This speaks directly, even early on here in the sermon, little, little side note here is that this speaks directly to the idea and the misconception and the poor teaching that's preached and championed among the proponents of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth preaching and teaching that hold to the false belief that when you become a Christian, all your dreams come true. Your bank account all of a sudden begins to overflow. You never get sick again. And you look out in the parking lot and you've got a Bentley with a license plate that says blessed and you didn't even ask for it. It just happened, right? 
Well, even Jesus was led by the Spirit, not into a garden. He was led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. Friends, not everything that's tough for us is brought about by the enemy. At times, it's brought about by God, ultimately for our good. And having poor theology taught and believed causes people to question what's wrong with them when they have these desert moments. They, they begin to question their belief. They wonder uh, what they did to cause this bad thing to happen. And unfortunately, they're left in a sea of misery and self-contempt when they're sick or when they're in a difficult season. That's the natural end to such teaching. Not too long ago, I was meeting with a, um, a friend uh, that I had met. Um, he's a police officer. Um, I met him through a particular incident. I didn't get a ticket, promise. Um, that's not the incident. Um, he was writing up a police report uh, for me, and um, I don't know, we sparked up a, a friendship. Uh, he followed up with me not too long later, and we sat down, um, and he's like, man, I got one big thing that I'm going through. I'm like, yeah, man, hit me with it. Um, he said, uh, so I've been going to this church, and they've been teaching now for a church, a pastor, like they're preaching this. Um, if, if you give 10% of all your gifts and income for three months. If you're not wealthier after the, at the end of three months than you were going into that three months, they're going to give you your money back, okay? Fine print is they're going to meet with you, and if they find any sin in your life during those three months that can point to why your money didn't end up being uh, multiplied in your account, then it cancels the agreement and you don't get your money back. So he met with me, not just to make me sick at my stomach. He met with me to basically ask me this. He was like, Jeremy, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. He said, I'm doing all that they've asked me to do. I'm reading, I'm giving, I'm putting my tithe even on credit by faith. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa. But it left him looking, looking inward like, what am I doing wrong? How am I failing here? Friends, this is getting preached. And we will easily believe this if we're not careful. We will easily believe this if we're not careful. Already, though, we see the real Jesus teaching us that in the desert moments, it very well could be a gift from God that should leave us asking him, Father, teach me what I must know during this difficult season. Protect me from doubting your goodness. Protect me from questioning your ability that you actually care for me. And protect me from doubting that you can deliver me. You see, family, our sanctification doesn't come to us when things are easy and comfortable. Though we might enjoy seasons that are easy and comfortable, that's great. Our sanctification, you know, being made more like Jesus most often comes to us with great difficulty and with soul trouble. Yet in these moments, we are being fashioned into God's, into Christ's likeness, and we're being molded more into God's image. 
And so if we're not careful, we're going to give the enemy credit for what God has granted to us for our good. And believing this, we can hold tightly to the truth that's in James chapter 1. This doctrine allows Christians to see that we can now count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces steadfastness. Now, now let steadfastness dwell. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in moments of difficulty in life, if we're not gleaning from these theological truths, we'll wonder, does God care for me? Is he mad at me? But consider Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews is quoting from uh, Proverbs chapter three. He says, my son, familial language, language, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's a significant thing. Don't regard it lightly. It is significant. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved or corrected by him. Here's why. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he is tired of, who he's mad at. What's it say? For the Lord disciplines the one he, say it again, the one whom he loves. And he chastises every son he stiff arms and rejects, right? No. He chastises every son whom he receives. Do you see that careful language? Love, son, receives. Friends, if you're in a desert moment here lately, take courage, hold fast and stand firm. God loves you, he is for you, and he has received you. Be encouraged. Well, now we have three temptations, and here's the first one. Look at verse three. The devil said to him, the devil says to Jesus, if, if you are the son of God, command this stone right here to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. So the first temptation here urges Jesus to use his newly publicly confirmed status according to chapter 322. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Context. So it, the temptation is for him to use this new status to perform an act of power to satisfy his hunger, to prove that he is in fact the son of God. Well, of course, this points out that Jesus experienced hunger, a natural physical craving for, for actual food. So it's pointing in a secondary way that, that he was human, that he experienced this desire. But, but, but notice that the temptation is deeper than mere food and physical appetite. You see, if you look, you'll notice that the temptation was really uh, directed against Jesus's obedience to his father. The enemy is suggesting that the satisfaction of his bodily needs was more important than obedience, more important than the spiritual experience of developing character through obeying God in difficult times. Be reminded of Romans chapter 5 where we can rejoice in our sufferings. We, we know very little about rejoicing in our sufferings. We, are, we live in such a convenient culture. But here we're told, rejoice. We can rejoice in our sufferings. 
We can develop grit with joy and gladness through our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the Christian suffering isn't wasted. It is never wasted. The desert is not without purpose. The wilderness is not on accident. So if you're going through the wilderness or the desert, know that he's with you and it's not an accident that you're there. There's something happening. Something's being produced. Something's being cultivated. Develop grit through suffering by trusting in the good hand of God that delivered you to such a place. Well, Jesus responds by quoting the uh, scriptural principle that a real person's, a person's real life doesn't depend on the satisfaction of physical things like, like hunger. And so the point Jesus is making is that the enemy made an attractive suggestion, yeah, but Jesus refused it simply because it went against God's word. It went against scripture. Therefore, he cannot do this because it is written. Now, the second temptation, look with me at verse five. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, I don't know if you've been to Disneyland. I think it's at Disney World as well, but the the attraction, uh, Soarin', where you kind of get to take in uh, a lot of the sights and scenes from around the world. It's a magical experience. Um, This would probably be something similar to that, except much more grand. And he gets him up in this place where he looks at all these different places of the world. And he says to him, to you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory. The things that make you go, whoa, this is cool. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus is now taken to this high point, which somehow he can see the entire world. And as its apparent ruler, the the world's apparent ruler, according to Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So as its apparent ruler, the devil offered uh, to surrender this dominion over to Jesus if he would acknowledge his enemy as his higher authority. So this temptation comes in a, a, a less subtle way this time. You see, ultimately, however, the, the world doesn't belong to the devil. His, his promises are not to be trusted. And to bow to him is conflicting with serving God alone because Jesus here leans heavily into Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13 and 14, where it says, it is the Lord your God that you shall fear. You shall serve him and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. Third temptation now, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
So finally here, the enemy, who's been defeated by Scripture already, he tries to quote Scripture. He, he tries to quote Scripture for his own interest. And he takes it and he twists it. And notice, I mean, he uses the truth, but he doesn't tell the whole truth. Now, now here, without even going into the enemy, let's look at ourselves here. This still happens today even by us if we're not very careful. This is why we have to study and think. Christians are those who study. Christians are those who think, they ponder, they dwell, they dig. This is what it means to be Christian. Do this. It protects us from so much. Also, this is often how the idols of our heart talk to us as well, right? They, they tell us the truth, right? This is going to be fun. You need this. You deserve this. But they don't tell the whole truth. They don't tell you that it's going to cost you something. They don't tell you that it's going to hurt your friends and family. They don't tell you that it's going to lead to despair and guilt. It doesn't tell you that it won't last, that it's fleeting, that it will disappoint you and leave you empty, wanting more. So seek out the whole truth. So what the enemy does here is he actually quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He does a great job with it, by the way. But he's basically saying that, that this scripture permits Jesus to leap down from this high porch area, the portico area of the temple, leaping down into the Kidron Valley below. And so the devil strangely presented this as an opportunity, right? As an opportunity for Jesus, the son of God, to demonstrate and prove his trust in his father, God. So here's a chance for you to prove that you trust your dad. But now, if you think about this, it would have actually been an act of unbelief, not belief. It wouldn't have proved his, his obedience. It would have proved his disobedience and lack of faith. You see, people don't test somebody when they already have complete trust in that person. You don't need to. You completely trust them already. Well, especially when that person is God. And so Jesus turns back and leans on Deuteronomy 6 and commands him not to put him to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. If Jesus gives in here to this temptation, he would be in fact doubting that he was really God's son and he would be doubting that his father was good and trustworthy. So three specific attacks that the enemy throws at Jesus after 40 days of not eating, being very weary and tired as a man in the wilderness, in the desert. But wonderfully, he is rejected every single time, and he withdraws from the scene for the time being. He doesn't make another public appearance until Luke 22 in verse 3, but he's still very active through Luke, as we will see in the coming weeks. Through this, we learn a whole lot. We, we learn that, that Satan can coax and lure, but Satan cannot command, that he is, in fact, limited and we learn here that God is always ready to help us resist. And Jesus proves that we can depend on another truth from James, James chapter four, verses seven through eight, where it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Trust in God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But notice there's more. Notice here with me that the temptations are all directed against Jesus as the Son of God in his identity. 
not his mission. His mission was Messiah. It was hitting at his identity as the Son of God. Again, I would argue that this flows directly from chapter 3, 22. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so the attacks of the enemy are at right at the source of this new identity that's been declared by God over Jesus, his son, enabling his mission. You see, these, these aren't directed against his, his work of being the Messiah, encouraging him to win over people and impress them by the spectacular miracles. This is not what it's there for. These attempts, these temptations are there uh, to, to set Jesus against God, his father. And in that relationship is where the status of him being the Messiah actually rested. And I know that many people struggle with the idea here that, that, that Jesus could actually be tempted to sin, right? I mean, some, some even say that when Jesus was tempted, that he wasn't really tempted, but he he basically faked it so we'd feel better about ourselves. Well, if you think about it, this sounds more like the idea of Jesus being a Superman figure, right? Where Jesus just appears to be a, a regular dude. He's, he's just a regular, um, tempted Galilean peasant under this Clark Kent-like disguise, and it makes him actually unable to really suffer from the same weaknesses as the rest of us mere humans. And the logical conclusion of this false Jesus is that Jesus can't in fact be our mediator because he's not fully human and therefore he cannot represent us before God the Father. So this is not who the real Jesus is. He wasn't just pretending to be tempted. So that begs the question, well, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? Well, I mean, there's been hundreds of books written on this and many blogs, I'm sure. Many arguments over coffee and beer have been had over this. But the precise biblical answer is we don't know for sure. And honestly, the Bible never directly addresses it, much less answers this question for us. And now some might find this disturbing, and I don't necessarily like it, but the Bible is very clear that humility is required for the healthy and strong theologian, the one who is the student of scriptures. And so we must be satisfied with trusting that the God of the universe will let us know all that we need to know, and he doesn't give us all that we don't need to know. So we need to rest in trusting in him. And so, uncomfortable with this, many people have resulted to the place of logic and reasoning where Scripture is silent. Some have turned here, and they follow this uh, uh, syllogism, this deductive reasoning that you can see on the screen. God cannot sin. Jesus is God. Therefore, I'm sorry, God cannot die. Jesus is God. My bad, I messed up. God cannot sin. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus cannot sin. Okay, that's logic. But if we apply this same logic, because you have to be consistent if you're going to use this tool, you have to apply this even in the way of the death of Christ. And here you end up in heresy. You end up with a poor conclusion that says this, God cannot die. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus cannot die. Well, that's not satisfactory for anyone, I don't think. So what's wrong here? Is it the logic? No, I'm not saying that at all. The problem is the second line the minor premise. You see, Jesus is not just God. Rather, he is God in the flesh. 
the God-man that we looked at two weeks ago, the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God, fully man. So Jesus emptied himself of his equality with the Father and took on a fully human nature so that during his incarnation, when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, while he remained fully God, he was not merely God. So as a result, to answer this question biblically requires this following syllogism. God cannot sin. Jesus is God and man. Therefore, Jesus was tempted in every way we are, but absolutely without sin. You see, Jesus was God in every way, but according to Hebrews chapter five, seven through nine, it says it is necessary for Jesus as the incarnate son, that God in the flesh, it was required for him to learn obedience by learning to obey to an extent that no human will ever experience. I mean, these temptations were horrific and we have only three. There were thousands. We have three specific recorded temptations. The battle for victory over the temptations that Christ faced throughout his life cannot be overestimated and stated. But where Adam failed and failed, Jesus resisted and prevailed. And somehow in this, his humanity was completed, made perfect, if you will, according to Hebrews 5, 9. And thankfully, by his perfection, he became the source of our eternal salvation. So the temptation that Jesus experienced were attempts to deceive him to do wrong. But notice with each attempt of the deceiver, the enemy, Jesus uses truth. He uses scripture. He uses the word of God as his weapon of choice to defeat and extinguish the fiery, wicked darts of the enemy. But this isn't the case with Adam, our first representative. This isn't the case of the one whom we most naturally associate with. You remember the garden, the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve were there. Adam was tempted by the enemy, and he caved in. He gave in, and he sinned. Adam questions God and his word. Not so with Jesus. Jesus holds fast to the Father's word, and he questions the tempter. He, he preaches back to the tempter. He doesn't allow the tempter to speak to him in this way. Jesus is tempted by the enemy, but he recognizes the sinful opportunities and he stands strong. Jesus resists the enemy. Jesus speaks truth and thanks to the spirit, he emerges unscathed as Jesus relied on God and he relied on God's word. So in light of this, in light of this, we learn a lot, but I want us to walk away with seven practices of fighting temptation. So if you've got your phone, throw the note app out. All right, all right let's, let's take some notes here. If you've got a pen and paper, my preferred method, jot these things down. They're not alliterated so you can remember them, okay? I want to make sure you can remember them so I did not alliterate. We've got seven, seven practices of fighting temptation here. I encourage you to record these. So, so here's what you do when you're tempted to sin. Here's what to do when you're tempted to sin. First, I encourage you to talk to God about it openly and vulnerably. Talk to God about it openly and vulnerably. And I would even add audibly. Talk to God about it openly and vulnerably. Pray something like this. God, I'm tempted to retaliate against my friend. 
I want to wound him because I feel disrespected. I want to wound her because I feel taken for granted. And I know just what to say that's going to hurt them the most. And you know what that is. I can say it. Help me resist. Give me healing words. Give me the control because you know I'm about to fly off the handle. Give me the strength needed because I'm weak right here. And allow me to give grace with my words and not to say harmful things. Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Speaking of temptation, Paul takes comfort and encourages Christians to to take comfort in the fact that God is faithful. Tempted, God is faithful. No temptation has overcome you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry is attached to temptation. Run. Don't be stupid, right? Don't be silly. It's, it's, not, just a tr- it's not just a cheap trick. It's, 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 not, it's not innocent. It's not cute. It's not playful. Flee from idolatry. Trust in the Lord. Ask him for help. Run. Don't play games. You see, God promises a way of escape from every temptation. Ask him to reveal that to you in that prayer. Reveal to me this way out. Help me to see it clearly. Give me the strength to take that way. Secondly, so first, talk to God about it openly and vulnerably. Secondly, hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the word of God. Friends, this is what Jesus clung to. This is what Jesus relied on when he was tempted. How much more should we? Trust scripture. Ask God for grit in your pursuit of the scriptures. Doing this allows you the ability to more frequently fight off the offers of the enemy by listening to the voice of God in scripture and not to be overcome by the voice of temptation. God, even here you can pray, God, give me grit in my pursuit of you in scriptures and help me have a big ear towards you and help me grow deaf over the years towards the voice of the enemy. In the early chapters of Proverbs, there's um, the adulterous woman calling out in the streets, screaming out. This is the voice of temptation. It's loud. But the sweet whisper of God in Scripture and through prayer is still more powerful than the loudest voice of temptation. Ask him to increase the sound of his voice through his word and decrease the volume of temptation that so consistently troubles you. Third, recognize your true enemy. Recognize your true enemy. You see, we don't fight against flesh and blood, so we can't fight that way. Don't take matters in your own hands. Don't don't try to jump in front of what God's trying to do here. Don't fight. Those around you aren't your true enemies. Notice your true enemy. And I know in marriage specifically, man, it's easy to begin to see each other as your enemy. 
if you're not very careful. And it's like you're combative. You're going like this, like this, you know. And over the last two years, Jill and I have even had this practice where we even in the moment of something where we're just going back and forth, where one of us will just come and stand beside the other. And it's like, all right, let's, let's talk together to the true enemy. Like to visualize what's happening here. It's like the, the enemy's tricking us to think that, that we're at odds at each other. That's a lie. We're united together. We're one person. Let's turn and let's talk together to the enemy. So, so know who your true enemy is. Recognize your true enemy. And be encouraged that Jesus fights with us. He's aware and he's interceding for you. God's spirit, Christian, God's spirit is with you. So fight the true enemy with your true weapon, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now fourth, bring others into your temptation and struggle with sin. Bring others into your temptation and struggle with sin. It's a lie that you can handle this on your own. It's a complete lie. You're just taking the bait. That's another temptation. You can do this by yourself. It's false. That's the only thing in creation that wasn't good is that man was by himself. It's still true today. We need each other. Opening up is healthy. It brings strength. I mean, the, the enemy's playground is darkness. If you bring something to the light, he doesn't have a card to play. You revealed his tricks. And don't be pretty about it. Man, when you find a person you can trust, just, just say it. Just put it out there with bluntness. I use the analogy of like, a, like looking for a particular screw in a, like an assorted can of just random nuts, bolts, and screws. Like, man, just dump it out on the table. We can sort through it and clean it up later. Let's dump it out. Don't try to be polite and correct in how you're trying to put everything out. Just throw it out. But be, be discerning in whose shoulders are figuratively strong enough to be able to handle this. Find someone mature. Find someone that you've seen living out in obedience, uh, like Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. Find someone who's been walking this path for some time. Their shoulders are probably strong enough to help walk you through this. You see, the Christian community can encourage you. They can hold you accountable a little bit more, and they can certainly pray for you. So ask them for follow-up. Ask them for consistent prayer. Ask them for consistent concern. You see, bringing things into the light is a key to destroying the works of the enemy. Be reminded of 1 John 1, 7, where it says, if we walk in the light, exposing things. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Friendship. But the lie of the enemy says, if you say this, you're going to be hated, right? Pigeonholed. You're going to be pushed away and isolated from the community. Not so. Scripture says this. Hold fast to Scripture right here. Take this Scripture to the bank and cash a check on it. If you walk in the light as he is in light, you're going to have fellowship with one another. The complete opposite of what the enemy's telling you. Bring it into the open. Expose it. You're going to have better friends through it. But not only this, <laughs> the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Bring it out in the open. His sin covers even that. Be encouraged by that. Fifth, develop a strategy. Develop a strategy. Develop a strategy. As you're tempted and as you give in to sin time after time, this leads to a lot of despair, right? It, it, I mean, it just brings you into weariness, fighting fatigue, and you'll often think, man, what's the point? I don't know if you've experienced that. I have. Well, I encourage you to begin studying yourself. Seriously, begin taking note of the times and places where you are most typically overcome with temptation where you most easily and most readily give in to temptation and sin. 
and begin to develop a strategy to help make it a bit more difficult to sin in the same ways. Try outthinking the enemy in this way or outthinking yourself even. So instead of assuming that sin is the inevitable result of any temptation, try outthinking the enemy in this way and outthink yourself. Take time to recognize that this is a trick of the enemy and begin seeing the true enemy's work. Examine your heart, think, process, see what the enemy is actually doing. He isn't leading me to life. He's trying to trick me here. Be like, why do I always fall in this? I'm tired, it's late at night, I'm alone. Sixth, play it out. Play it out. Play out the consequences of saying yes to a temptation. Ask yourself, well, what would happen if I lied on this job application and was found out? What would happen? Ask yourself, what would happen if I was unfaithful to my spouse and my family was broken by it? What would holidays look like? What would birthdays look like? What would Father's Day and Mother's Day look like? What would our friends think? What would they say? How would things be different? Play it out. You see, when you often play things out like this, the you'll see that the consequences of giving in to a particular temptation, the price of that temptation, you'll notice it is always too high. Someone hurts. Something suffers. So instead of making a plan to hide the sin, which that's usually where we drift to, right? Instead of making a plan to hide the sin or, or deal with the consequences after the fact, plan ways of fighting the temptation itself. Understand the fallout. Play it out. This is a Pastor Appreciation Month, October. And I've received some cards from some of the kids in the church. And I, I was reading, in light of this this week, I was reading a couple that were given to me. And they, they each, uh, Ava and Noah Wilson, both said, thanks for being a great pastor, which is very gracious. But in light of this, I just began thinking. Like, I was picturing how Christian and Jenna Ava and Noah's parents, like what that conversation will be like in their living room if I did something stupid and disqualified myself from being able to preach and lead. Of, of what that conversation will be like as Christian got down on his knee with his two little kids and explaining why Jeremy's not gonna be here. Explaining what their great pastor did. And that's just one little conversation. And I think about my kids, I think about my marriage, I think about my grandkids and anniversaries and celebrations and mornings and funerals and all this, it just goes on. It's like, man, that gets costly. But the enemy makes it look so easy. The enemy even tricks you into thinking you're not even gonna get caught. So why even worry? Finally, number seven, preach to your temptation. Preach to your temptation. I've heard it said before that all sins are in one sense an attempt to fill a genuine and righteous longing, but in a way that's inappropriate and against God's word. Instead of uh, denying the appeal of sin, we can affirm the goodness of God and confess our desire for the good gifts that only come from him. Remember, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he relied on the very words of God for strength, over and over, Jesus responded to Satan's invitations to sin by saying, it is written, and then quoting God's promises, quoting God's commands. 
In the same way, we can preach the gospel to ourselves by confessing our weaknesses and claiming Christ's power as we lean on his truth. We can remind ourselves, family, that in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come. We can give thanks that Christ died for our sins so that we would not become slaves to sin anymore. So when the temptation to sin comes again, and it's going to within the hour, or sooner. We can meet it with the confidence that we've already been given everything we need to resist the enemy. And more significantly, we can celebrate the fact that real life and true joy is in God's presence and in the satisfaction that he can offer us, not in the lie that the enemy is telling us. So I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 4, 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have him as our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, has come to us. And he came to us and experienced life as us for us to the extent where he can look at you, my friends, and say, yeah, I get it. He knows what it is that you're shouldering. He has shouldered it for you already. He knows what it's like to live under the burden of what it's like to live under the burden of your life, under the weight and pressure of your daily grind. He's in the thick of it with you. He's lived this life for us as us. Take courage, stand firm, and hold fast. As a way of us remembering this salvation that comes by God's love, through the Son's obedience and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the transformation that he does in our hearts, we get to remember this now by taking communion together. Where we think, remember I say it every, every week almost, Jesus said when he presented this communion to his disciples, he said, remember me as often as you take this. In other words, think of me. In other words, think. Don't just mindlessly come to the table. Think. Christians are those who think. Think deeply on this. Remember what this bread represents. When you come to the table, Christian, you're grabbing this piece of bread that represents the perfect life of Christ that was lived for you, tempted thoroughly, never sinned. And that cancels out by faith, that cancels out your life of, uh, your, of temptation that led to sin, complete sin, a lot of sin. is canceled out because of what Christ has done. Not only this, you take that and you dip it in the juice or the wine. That red liquid represents the death of Christ where he didn't just suffer a death. That death accomplished something. There was more going on behind the scenes. He was suffering for your sin that you gave into while you were tempted in this life. He absorbed the wrath of God in your place. That is what he was doing on the cross. He was what the Bible considers to be your propitiation, your wrath absorber. He took your place and endured the punishment that you deserve for your sin. This isn't just a time where we take bread and wine and juice. This is a significant time in your life that you get to come to the table 
and acknowledge what Christ has endured for you. So when you take this, I want you to know that because of what Christ accomplished, there is nothing that you can face that the gospel is powerless. Nothing. There's nothing that your, your desert moment is not without purpose. It's not without producing something. And do not grow weary in the wilderness. Don't grow weary in the daily grind of the desert. It is for a purpose. He has you there for a reason. Endure. Don't tap out. Don't be tempted to take the easy way out. Endure, my friends. He's with you, and it's producing something. Take comfort and stand firm. Let me pray for us and ask God to add his special blessing to our time of communion as we remember him and what he's accomplished for us. God, thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to hear this passage preached. Lord, I pray that you would use it to bring courage to our hearts, to bring strength to those who are tired, who are weary, and who are exhausted. Jesus, thank you for not giving in to temptation. Thank you for being the better Adam. Lord, thank you for, for Lord, uh, acknowledging this temptation and speaking truth to it and not questioning it, not doubting it, but resting on God, providing us an example. But more than providing us an example, you provided us a way back into the heart of God, back into friendship and relationship with him through your perfect life, through your death in our place as our substitute, and through beating death through your radical, glorious resurrection. Lord, may we remember you. May we remember what you have accomplished for us this morning as we take this communion. God, bring, bring comfort and strength to my friends who are tired. Provide for them. Provide for them in the desert, in the, in the wilderness. God, give them courage and strength. Give them proper thinking and proper belief as they endure. Lord, I ask that you add your special blessing to our time now of communion. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.